0: Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, very good. Well, we are about midway point in our series of AHA, Awakening Honesty and Action, and we've heard some good stories from you about this series. In fact, if you would be willing to share some of those stories, perhaps not up here on a Sunday morning, but share those stories with us, you could write those on the comment cards, the connection cards, and you could put those in the offering plate later in the service. We'd just like to hear From you uh, about this series, some of you have been excited about the sermon series, or in your life group discussions, or in your readings, particularly in the 40-day devotional book. And anytime we as a church can gather together and talk about our spiritual growth, I think is a good thing. In fact, it's it's really what we want to do here every week at Hope Chapel. Is we want to encourage you, we want to challenge you to be intentional about your spiritual life, because we know that that doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen automatically with me. It doesn't happen automatically with anybody on staff or any of the other pastors. You and I, we, we know that there's a lot of things in our life that are pulling for our attention and our time. So last week, I began into the topic of honesty. We talked about topics like sin, repentance, and rebuke. And none of us like to get in trouble per se, but we had to talk about that topic. Because if we're going to talk about how is our relationship with God, then we have to talk about Sin. We have to be honest about that. Honesty is not a step that we can overlook. Next week, we're going to specifically talk about some action steps that you can take with your spiritual awakenings. And the temptation for us is to jump right into action. But if we jump right into action, then we'll kind of think that we can do this in our own energy and in our own timing whenever we are ready. So in honesty, we come to the conclusion that we need God And that perhaps we need to go to God and to seek his forgiveness. Now, going to God is not because we need our hands slapped because we realize that we've done bad. I mean, going to God and confessing our sin is understanding that we need God in our life and that life with him and doing it his way is really better. We know that God wants the best for us. It's not like he's a drill sergeant that wants to just keep his soldiers in line. Jesus said seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and the things that you need in life will be added unto you it's not a way of manipulating you you know if you'd come home we'd give you this stuff it's saying we already know that you have that need and we're working on getting you what you need so rather than worrying and focusing your time and energy on these things seek my kingdom and seek my righteousness we also hear Jesus say things like abide in me and then you'll see fruit in your lives. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, it said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We all want knowledge. We all want wisdom in life. We want our lives to be productive. We want a life that's worry-free. But we often forget that we can't have those things apart from God. But some people don't see God as someone that they can go to, that they can really trust in life. And some of that has to do because they don't trust us as believers, The church the older brother, so to speak, in this, in this parable. And someone who's really down and out in life, someone who feels worse about themselves in life, should be drawn to Jesus. But those people often don't want to go to church or hang out with a bunch of believers because they feel like they're going to be judged, condemned, and shamed. And so this is how they see God, as someone to fear, as someone that punishes. Now, you and I could probably share our stories about how we were disciplined as a kid. Most of us grew up in an age of spanking. I grew up with some wooden spoons and leather belts, if I'm honest. And I know that's not the preferred method of disciplining today, and I'm not trying to say whether it is or not. I know that we've taken some extremes on both measures. But for me, I don't remember a time where my parents ever spanked me out of anger. They never punished me to try to put me in my place or to show power and dominion over me. They always did it with love, communicating to me. But I know that for some, the idea of discipline and love do not go together. So to think about God as our father, as the one who disciplines his children, no thanks. I'm kind of all set with that. We're kind of going to try to figure out how to do life on our own. So today I want to spend around the topic of what is it like when we go to God in our sin? What really happens? How does God respond to us when we go to him in our sin? We're going to take a look at the parable that we've been looking at for this whole series in Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you in the chairs, this is on page 886. Every week we've been reading through this parable, and I think it's great for us to spend time reading through it, kind of getting a fresh look at it, and then we'll make some observations specifically around this topic of how does God see us when we, when we go to him with our sin. So we'll be reading in verse 11. He also said, this is Jesus talking, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck the country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carob the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses... He said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and here I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to the father, "'Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. "'I'm no longer worthy to be called your son.' "'But the father told his slaves, "'Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. "'Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. "'Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, "'and let's celebrate with a feast, "'because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. "'He was lost and is found.' "'So they began to celebrate. "'Now his older son was in the field, "'and as he came near the house, "'he heard music and dancing, so he summoned one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered in the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came... Who devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughter the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, this morning I'm gonna kind of geek out on you. I'm gonna be a nerd. Do we have any nerds in the house? Be honest, be honest. There we go. All right. I'm going to kind of nerd out this morning. Because I find in this parable this simple, amazing conjunction. A conjunction is a small word that connects ideas and sentences together. We have conjunctions in our English language, like and, yet, so, or, or. You say conjunctions all day in every conversation you had with everyone. Conjunctions. Now, what I find fascinating is one particular conjunction in this parable. In the Greek, there are two primary conjunctions, de, de, and kai, kia. Pretty exciting already, right? Well, they are kind of interchangeable. De can sometimes mean and, sometimes it can mean but. Kai can sometimes mean and, sometimes it can mean but. So, how do we know which one the text is talking about? Well, in your English translation, more commonly, kai is translated as and. And di is more commonly translated as but, or so, or after, or when, such as when he came to his senses that we talked about last week in verse 17. Now, the whole point of this is that di is used at specific points in the story. It's used 13 times in 22 verses. Now, we have to remember that verses were not original to the text, Verses were added to our translations about the mid-1500s. And the joke is that the guy who created the divisions was making the divisions while he's riding on his galloping horse. You know, we're not sure why he made these divisions up. There's no rhyme or reason behind them. So in my opinion, D could be a key marker for story development. Not only is Jesus saying the story is continuing... But it could be that Jesus is saying the story is changing. I like the thought of that. No, there's times in our lives where we can only see what's right in front of us. And people say, it's going to be better. Just trust God. And we have no idea how exactly that's going to work out. You know, all we can see is the fog or the confusion or the frustration right in front of us. So we're going to take a closer look at some of these instances And part of this is we're going to imagine, what would Jesus have been communicating if he simply stopped right before any of these did? All right, it's did, not duh. What would Jesus have been communicating if he stopped the story at any of these points? Because the truth is that you and I, we stop our stories early. Sometimes we get too comfortable in our spiritual walk, or sometimes we just simply fail to recognize that God wants to continue to work in us And through us and with us and even for us. The reason that Jesus is telling this parable is because in verses one and two, the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining that Jesus was eating and fellowshipping with sinners and tax collectors. I mean, why would Jesus do that? He was this great teacher, he was this rabbi, he knew the Jewish law and tradition, and he claims to be the Son of God. Is this really how God would act? So he tells these parables. The first duh in in this parable is in verse 14. In verse 14 it says, After he had spent everything. You can circle the word after there. Up to this point, Jesus said that the younger son went to the father, disrespected of him, wished that he was dead, wanted his inheritance early, and the father gave him his inheritance. He took the inheritance And went into the distant country where he spent it all in wild and reckless living. End of story. End of story. Without the duck coming in verse 14. What would Jesus have been communicating if the story had ended there? Well, Jesus would be saying, once you decide to live a life away from God, then that's it. There's no coming back. You've dug your hole, so that's where you're going to be. And the reason that I'm hanging out with you and fellowshiping with you is because there's no way that you can come this way. You're a bad person. So I'm just going to go and hang out with you. Well, of course, we know that's not what Jesus wanted to communicate. So there's a dih in this parable, a continuation of the story. However, the story doesn't seem quite promising yet. There's a little bit of hope for the young son. He spent everything he had, and now there's a famine in the land. Well, he was able to get a job. Imagine that jobs are hard to come by while you're in a famine situation in a Great Depression. And if you've ever been without a job, you know the relief that you can feel when you do get a job. So this guy found a job. Good for him. But he soon realizes it's not that great. He couldn't even support himself. He couldn't even get enough food. He was hungry. End of story. Without the dip coming in verse 17. End of story. What, th- what would that say? Well, many people feel like that's their story. You know, when it rains, it pours. They can never seem to get a break. Everything's always against them. And so the only thing they can do in life is just to try to figure out how to do it on their own. You know, maybe it's true that God helps those who help themselves. They got to get out there. They got to network. They got to find some new friends. Because it's not what you know, it's who you know that really gets you ahead of life, right? So they try to figure out how can they live life on their own. Because life with God just doesn't seem to be working out. They know what the end story is all about. So you hear people say things like, "Eh, If I went to church, lightning would strike. Or, there's no way that God loves me, I've done too many bad things. Or, God can't use me, I'm, I'm not really good at anything. Or you hear people say... How can God, who's the creator of the universe, this this massive, big God, how can he care about me? I'm so insignificant. Why would he care what happens in my life? People don't see that the story is continuing. So now we have the second in the parable in verse 17. Verse 17 said, when he came to his senses, and you can circle the word when there. This young son, he had a breakthrough. He had this awakening, this divine revelation. An alarm had sounded, and he said, I have messed up big time. I need to go back and confess my sin to my father and to seek his forgiveness. And he got up and went to his, his father in the beginning of verse 20. And maybe that's how you feel your story is at. Maybe that's where many of us feel like our story is now. We realize that we need change in our lives, We're honest about some decisions that we need to make. We've even prayed about it. Maybe our marriage has been on the rock, and we said, we need to get back to church and try to put all the pieces back together. Or, you know, maybe my child has grown up to a teenager, and I need the youth pastor to come alongside and straighten this kid out. We realize that we come to a point where we need some answers from the big guy upstairs. So we get back to church. We get back to a relationship with God. People say, okay, well, what happened? What happened? I don't know. I just came back, and here we are. That's why I'm here. Did God do anything amazing? How's your marriage? How's the kid? What's going on? I don't know. I guess things were a little bit better. I mean, we still have our issues. Now, none of us think that those are compelling stories that we want to come up here and share on a Sunday morning. And maybe that's why many of us don't want to come up here and share our faith stories, because we we feel like we don't have a story really to share. And what many of us fail to do is we fail to see how God is working in us and wanting to change our situation around us. We fail to see how God is continuing the story in our lives. Or maybe we're at a point where we haven't really fully gone 100% back to God. We've only gone 80%. We realize that we need some change in our lives, and we get up and we go to the Father, and that's about it. You know, life started getting a little bit better. We got out of the bad situation. And our passionate pursuit for a solution with God has kind of decreased. What would it have been like if Jesus ended the story right there? The guy realized he needed change, so he got up and went to his father. End of story. We'd be wondering, well, what happened? The sinners and tax collectors would be wondering, what would happen if I go back to God? Would he accept me? The Pharisees and the scribes would be wondering whether Jesus was going to validate their biblical perspective. But the story does continue, because we've read the story. You know all about it. In verse 20, there's another duh. This duh actually happens the second sentence in verse 20. But while he was a long way off. So I encourage you to circle the word but there. This duh is the first shocking duh of the entire parable. The father sees the younger son while he was a long way off. This says a lot about the father, and it says a lot about God, because this parable is about God. It says that God has not forgotten about you. He has not considered you as a lost cause. He's a loving father who longs for his children to come home. And on the day that you finally decide to come home, you'll find him waiting for you. It wasn't just a moment of coincidence that the father looked out the window and saw the younger son. He was waiting every day for a sign that his son, a sign that you, would be returning home. See, God doesn't expect us to clean up our act. He doesn't expect us to come all the way to him fully. We don't have to be perfect. In fact, the moment that we begin to turn back and begin a relationship with God, he's in a mad sprint to meet us where we are. God's willing to go into the distant country and to help us to get back. The moment that our will decides to be his will, he's right there with us. And that's exactly what Jesus wanted to communicate to those who were listening to him. That's the, the point of the whole parable. In the two previous parables, in the parable of the lost corn and, and the parable of the lost sheep, we see that the person who lost the lost item was passionate about finding the lost object. In fact, it could be said that God is more passionate about finding the one that is away from home than the ones that are in the home because he's willing to leave the 99 in an open field to rescue the one. And for those of us who are at home, we need to be supportive and we need to be just as ambitious as God is about the lost. And this is really the whole point of the second half of the parable to the older son, to the Pharisees and scribes, to those of us who call ourselves Christians, that we need to be as ambitious as God is about the lost. Well, there's another in verse 21. If you look at your translations, some of your translations have the word and some of your translations at the beginning of verse 21 don't have a conjunction but the conjunction is there. So you maybe have to have to circle the empty space in between the letter and the words there. Now, what's going on here is that the younger son begins his confession to his father. He's saying, I have sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And maybe this is the younger son trying to keep his story around his sin because he's realized all the bad things that he's done in his life. Or maybe it's other people who are keeping your past sin alive in your story, like the older brother does in verse 30. Sometimes we feel God's embrace. We know that God loves us, but it's very hard to accept that he can really love me. Or maybe this shows that the son was really willing to go that extra 20%, to get to 100% commitment, to show his true repentance, and to confess his sins to his father. Sometimes people come into my office, they come to Neil's office and they're looking for spiritual or relational advice and sometimes the solution involves a confession of sins. Sometimes it involves going to another person who's part of the issue and those steps can be very hard for people to accept. They want to know the truth but they're not ready to handle the truth. They have an awakening. There's this honesty but they cannot take that action step. We need to go that extra 20% to go all the way. Well, there's another dick quickly in verse 22. You could circle the word but at the beginning of verse 22. But the father told his slaves. It's like the father interrupts the younger son. He's almost ignoring his comments, ignoring his confession, just yells to the slave. Hey, someone go get the best robe. Someone grab one of those family rings and put it on his finger. Grab some sandals. Fire up the barbecue. Get that fattened calf. There's going to be a party going on. Get your friends. There's a celebration. It's kind of like your mom yelling you, no, no, don't grab the paper plates. Grab the good china. And you're like, what's going on? What's she cooking? Who's coming over? Or it's like your dad handing you the keys to his 1967 Mustang and saying, here you go, pal. It's all yours. And you're like, what's going on with dad? Is he dying soon? Or it's like busting open the vacation money jar, and you're saying, let's go on vacation right now. Where do you want to go? These are exciting things. This, in this parable, does not make sense to anyone. I mean, people can expect the father to forgive the younger son because that's what good fathers do, and that's what we expect God to do is to forgive us. But to give him the best that the family had to have and to act like nothing ever happened, that's unbelievable because you and I don't even do that. When someone wrongs us, we can come to a point where we maybe forgive somebody, we may even pray for them, but to act like they're the best thing that has ever happened to us, probably not going to go there. And that's what Jesus is communicating. This is how God responds to those who turn back towards him. He's ready to give us that which we don't deserve because he's already taken care of the judgment that we do deserve through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's called grace and mercy. Jesus wants those listening to know that God is wild and he's reckless with his love towards you. And that's the honest truth about God. I think this is a key step in our spiritual growth. Not only do we have to be willing for God to expose some sin in our lives, and not only do we have to be honest about some sin that is happening in our lives, Not only do we have to be honest that we need God, but we need to understand how God sees us when we go to Him with our sin. He loves us, and He loves when we come home. Going to the Father should feel like a relief. It should feel liberating to know that He's lifting our burdens and that He's going to forgive us immediately. He doesn't make us work for it, it's never too late, no matter how long it takes. And this truth is really not found only in this parable. It's a truth throughout the scriptures. I was going to take this morning and find one verse out of every book in the Bible, 66 verses. But I figured I'd save you some time, and I kind of narrowed it down. So we're not going to have time to flip through them, but if you want to write them down, I'm just going to read through some of them. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Says, who is a God like you, removing iniquity and passing over judgment for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever, but he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us, he will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. God doesn't hold on to our sins, he doesn't want to bring them up later to remind us of our failures. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He has for us, made us alive with the Messiah. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. God changes us. He doesn't expect us to try to figure out how to change ourselves. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. With Jesus Christ, there's no more shame. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment. He brought me up from the desolate pit, out of the muddy clay, and set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. How happy is the man who puts his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or those who run after lies. Lord, my God, you have done many things. Your wonderful works and your plans for us. None can compare with you. If I were to report and speak of them, they are more than can be told. That's Psalm chapter 40, verses 2 through 5. Jesus says in John chapter 10, 28 and 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous run to it, and they are protected. His home is a safe home. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Matthew 28, verse 29. Habakkuk three nineteen. Yahweh, my Lord, is my strength. He makes, me, he makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. He enables you to move forward like he didn't think was even possible. Isaiah 40, verse 31. Those who trust in the Lord will, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. He enables you to endure life's struggles. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven through 14. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster. To give you a hope and a future. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. Zephaniah 3 verse 17. Yahweh your God is among us, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will bring you quietness with his love. He will delight in you with shouts of joy. Hosea 6, verse 3. Let us strive to know the Lord. His appearance is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us like rain, like the spring showers that water the land. Going to God is so refreshing. God's love is found throughout the Bible. Jesus is saying that the reason that I eat and hang out with sinners and tax collectors is because I love them, and I want them to know that I love them. I'm honest with their sin because I say, go and sin no more. I say, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But I want them to know that my love has already taken care of that sin. While wow, he was a long way off. No matter how far we feel that we are from God, God wants us to know that he's waiting, and he's wanting us to come home. It's not going to be awkward. It's not... Like he's going to keep his guard up and to see whether what you say is true. He doesn't care how long it takes. It's never too late. And we don't have to have this whole thing figured out. God is a loving God. He's a caring God. And he's proud that you came home. He's proud to call you his son. And he's proud to call you his daughter. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you are continuing the story in us. God, forgive us for when we feel like the story doesn't have much story left or we're not sure where the story is going. God, help us to see that you want to do something great in us and through us and with us and for us. You are continuing the story. God, we thank you for your love that we can go to you and we can confess our sin to you and you do not hold us against us. You free us from that sin. So God, there's no reason why we would ever not want to come to you. To have a life that's better. To live a life your way. Help us to recognize and to know when you are wanting us to change and to be honest about that change. For it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.